Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, let's focus in again on crypto. After what we saw yesterday, it was pretty mind-blowing, a drop down to 30,000 and then a rally back up to 40. Right now, we're trading at $41,645. What drove those moves? Well, it's probably a number of things um, together, but there is probably no other better expert um, with whom we could speak about this than Bobby Lee. He's the founder and CEO of Ballet, also co-founder and former CEO of um, BTCC, the longest-running Bitcoin exchange. Bobby, um, thanks very much for your time this morning. What do you think happened yesterday? Was it just sort of Elon Musk doing an about-face plus um, the Chinese authorities saying you can't use Bitcoin again? Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it is. It was a confluence of things. Certainly, it started with Elon Musk's, you know, U-turn on Bitcoin, so to speak. At least from the perspective of using it as a accepted currency on, for purchase of Tesla vehicles. Uh, he U-turned about this, uh, uh, you know, late last week. And um, certainly, the other aspect is the Chinese regulatory so-called uh, new ban on Bitcoin. But, the, but to analyze that, China didn't actually issue anything new. There was no new rules or anything. It was just a rehash of what it has previously published in September of 2017. So it's a confluence of those two events, which spooked the market. And then, of course, there's a third factor, which is very popular in Bitcoin, is the, is the factor of the trading, leverage trading. So people may not be aware of this, but Bitcoin, besides being traded on the spot market, uh, there's a high volume activity in the futures, you know, sort of a leverage trading market. And uh, when there's news events, you know, the the uh, short sellers take advantage of it and really hammer the people holding the long position. And that really helps drive it down to thirty thousand dollars. So, Bobby, let's talk about that volatility. Generally speaking, um, across the securities markets, that kind of vol volatility is not welcome, is considered not healthy. How do you, how do you view it? Yeah, I, I, I see that perspective. Uh, unfortunately, Bitcoin is a global sort of phenomenon, and there and the markets are, are not well regulated, frankly speaking. So in the equities market, each country has very strict regulatory agencies monitoring the trades and the insider news and so on and so forth. And for even for decentralized things like gold and precious metals, uh, the exchanges are regulated. But unfortunately for Bitcoin, because it's a global phenomenon, even though you know the Coinbase, the Gemini are regulated in the United States, you have a lot of uh, exchanges who are offshore, and uh, they do their thing, and it's very opaque. So, so at least in the near term, it's going to be very hard to, to sort of, uh, you know, try to try to control the volatility. But as in my new book, The Promise of Bitcoin, I try to point out to people: volatility does not equate to risk. So this is where there's a lot of confusion. How is that? Well. So when you ask me the question, you, there's an underlying assumption that volatility is bad, and the reason is because risk is bad. You know, something that's very high risk can be can be risky, quote unquote, right? Um, but in the case of Bitcoin, what I've found over the, my ten years, uh, sort of interacting with it, 
is that it is well risk adjusted. In other words, I, I do, you know, I just for disclosure, I own a long position in Bitcoin. I think that uh, it has huge potential as an investment asset class. So I think uh, for the for the amount of return I, that I expect to see for Bitcoin in the coming five years, ten years, twenty years, I think the volatility is well risk adjusted. I wonder sense. about the the big whales, Bobby. Yeah. Um, you know, Bloomberg has been publishing a figure: two percent of the wallets own ninety five percent of the assets. I'd love to get your take on that and. Um, the first time I ever met you was probably about 10 years ago. I was having drinks with Matthew Mellon and Alex Waters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Matt had a fair share of Bitcoin that he, you know, locked up all over the place. And I guess nobody will ever access it again. The same, of course, is true with, you know, massive storied stakes like Satoshi's. What does it mean that so much of this, you know, what was, you know, once more than a trillion dollar market cap, it looks like, you know, billions of it was just not accessible and never will be accessible. Um, And then other billions of it could easily be moved by one or two people. So so there is a there is sort of the the notion that there are rich people, you know, big uh, whales in the industry, but certainly nowhere, nowhere near the figures you presented of, did you say 2% only 90% of the assets? That's what, that's the figure I've seen, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that may be true of some other cryptocurrencies, but certainly not true for Bitcoin. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, the the pseudonymous, the anonymous inventor of Bitcoin, uh, people think he owns maybe over a million Bitcoins. And that's, that's the single largest holding, right? So, so if you can break it down very logically, that's uh, at most ten percent. Uh, but again, he hasn't surfaced. Uh, you know, there are a lot of rumors that he he actually lost his private keys. <laughs> so the next you know that the next biggest holdings would be uh, would be those of those custodial providers, something like Coinbase Custody or these large exchanges with a large wallet holding a lot of Bitcoins, but in reality, that is really held at, on custody for, you know, thousands or even millions of customers. Exactly. So Bitcoin yeah. is yep. very well dis- uh, dispersed. I wouldn't worry about uh, anything like that. But by the way, you know, in, in, in reality, on, 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 in the physical world, you have that phenomenon as well. You know, uh, you know, what percentage of wealth is owned by what percentage of people? People say, you know, their figures, you know, under 10% of the people own 50% of the world's wealth, whether that's real estate, equities, or or other stuff, right? Hey, Bobby, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts here. Fascinating story. Lots of volatility in the crypto world we've seen just, just this week. Bobby Lee, founder and CEO of Ballet, is also co-founder and former CEO of BTCC. Uh, he's also an author recent book out entitled The Promise of Bitcoin, The Future of Money and How It Can Work for You. That came out on May 18th. Some more news out of Morgan Stanley today. Big shakeup in the leadership ranks. And this follows on what we just saw earlier from JP Morgan. So uh, some more changes at Morgan Stanley. Let's see what that means. We bring in our expert. That would be Allison Williams. She's a senior banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Allison, what do you make of some of the changes here? It looks like Mr. Gorman is uh, setting up a, a, a race for potentially a successor. 
He is, and I would say, um, you know, the, the the two sort of leading candidates uh, emerging from the announcements are no surprise. Um, he did say, uh, at least according to Bloomberg News, um, he did say he expects to stand for at least three more years. Uh, but then according to the, the, the official announcements, you know, basically making the head of institutional Ted Pick and the head of wealth management, Andy Saperstein, as as sort of the the, the co uh, presidents and so front running, I guess front runners in the air apparent. And both of these executives have done um, a great job over the years. Uh, Ted Pick, as you know, um, started out with, with leadership in the equities business and then took over all of global trading. They are the global equities revenue leader, and um, despite the fact that that's sort of the biggest association with them, they have really gained a lot of share in fixed income. And then on the wealth management side, obviously that's a business that's done very well and become sort of the bigger part of the bank, especially with two recent large deals. Uh, I don't want to sound too cynical, but are you allowed to choose um, two white men as possible successors these days? It seems like such a faux pas. Well, these, I mean, the the one um, positive on the diversity front is that they are promoting the head of investor relations, Sharon Yeshiva, to um, the head of, to, to the CFO role. So that was, so I think that's a positive. Um, but to building a bench takes time. And I think that's um, important for all the firms, as we know, it's, Diversity is something that you need to grow over time. And for uh, Morgan Stanley, these uh, you know these two um, executives have run those two divisions, and they really were uh, sort of the most clear-cut choices. J.P. Morgan, on the other hand, um, you know what's interesting is CFO Marianne Lake, who has probably a, a much longer standing with the investment uh, relationship with the investment community uh, than her, her new co-head, Jennifer um, Peepsack. Um, but certainly uh, Marianne has long been considered uh, a, a potential for that role, Jennifer, as well in, in recent years, uh, whereas Morgan Stanley just does not have that bench, um, but perhaps trying to build it a little bit now. Allison, you know, we think about, you know, financial titans, obviously Jamie Dimon uh, right now is the leader. Give us a sense of how shareholders and folks like you who, who, you know, spend a lot of time in the financial services industry, how does Mr. Gorman kind of stack up in, in terms of his tenure? Well, he's done a great job. And I would say that, um, you know, especially I think in the early years, he, he made some tough uh, choices within the organization. I think that, that in general, um, he's been shareholder friendly over the years in terms of, um, you know, focusing on uh, things like uh, cost control. They've um, pretty much delivered all of the targets they set um, over the several year tenure. And I think the investment community really likes uh, the shift at the bank well, more towards the more stable wealth management business. Um, but again, they've had great success on the institutional side as well, even though it's a lesser part of their their business now. So what does I mean, in terms of the league tables here, um, who, who are the, the rising stars? Where does Morgan Stanley fit into the picture? 
Well, Morgan Stanley, uh, as I noted earlier, they're they're the leader in global equities trading. So that's, uh, I think, been been strong, and they've gained share um, in fixed income. The other notable position uh, for Morgan Stanley is, uh, you know, as an equities underwriter and as a um, a leader in M&A. So it's really Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, and Goldman Sachs are sort of the, you know, as we say, they're they're the consistent leaders in equity run underwriting and traditional IPOs over time, although they um, have been less active than perhaps some others in, in SPACs. They've also done business there. Um, both Goldman and Morgan Stanley are, are less strong on the, the debt side versus someone like J.P. Morgan. Um but they do get uh, sort of a tailwind and expected to get a tailwind there on M&A. Um, Goldman's the clear revenue leader there. Um, but again, uh, the three players that I talked about are, are very active, and that's a business that we expect has very strong fundamental support. Allison, are these are these uh, league table standings, and you can see them in many different ways on the Bloomberg with League or MA Go, et cetera, are, are, are they um, important to – um, equity returns does it does it really play through and in how investors can make money on these banks? Sure, and and so I think that's a that's a key point because what matters to investors is profitability. Um, but Morgan Stanley, as well as the largest U.S. banks, have benefited from sort of a virtuous cycle of scale and spending. And so, um, the benefit of scale is that um, it gives you more money to invest in technology. That's been the key battleground for financial companies over the last decade. And so that's where the scale has been helpful. Allison, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to get um, your insight. Allison Williams is a senior industry analyst, global investment banks and asset management for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking to us about the new succession plan over at Morgan Stanley. Really our top story today. This is Bloomberg. Yeah, um, let's get over right now to Bert Flickinger. We had the pleasure of speaking with Bert briefly and and were rudely interrupted um, the other day on the retail uh, earnings uh, rampage that we saw over the last few days. It just went on and on yesterday. He's the managing director of Strategic Resource Group, and he can come back on, thankfully, and share a couple more minutes with us. Bert, what did you think after we got, you know, all of the um, – uh, Walmart, Target, Macy's. I mean, we got a, a really Lowe's, um, Home Depot, just a ton of big box retailers out as well. How does the economy look from from um, a consumer perspective? I, uh, Paul, Paul, and Matt, the the, the economy uh, looks spectacular from a consumer perspective. Consumers have paid down $750 million in, in debt, or about 15% of uh, total debt, and uh, are, are ready to spend. But the interesting thing, is, as you referenced from yesterday, is um, nobody's talking about leadership, innovation, inflation, and obesity, which all um, uh, unconventionally combine to uh, really dri- drive up retail on the Bloomberg Terminal and the S&P XRT index. Uh, retail's up about 40% uh, year-to-date and about 140% TTM or trailing 12 months. And at the same time, we have record obesity levels, uh, 40% for adults, uh, 20% from toddlers to teens. They're going to need bigger clothes. Inflation means restaurants are uncompetitive on cost, people eating more at home, 
and uh, be, be t- between uh, clothing, uh, consumables, hard goods, and soft goods, Advantage Lowe's, adv- adv- Advantage BJ's, and Advantage Kohl's, uh, all of whom reported record-breaking numbers and all of whom have great leaders and, and tremendous boards from an ESG and diversity standpoint. It is interesting that people got fatter staying home. You would have thought maybe they'd eat healthier. Um, <laughs> that's, not, that's not what uh, happened, I guess. As John Mackey once told me, uh, consumers want uh, proverbial, quote-unquote, sin and salvation. They want salvation with natural and organics, uh, but when there are floods and, and major natural d- disasters, uh, the foods, full flavor, salt and sugar, are the first to sell out in the stores, and the last to go are the natural and organic items. Hey, Bert. Did you hear any from any of these companies, supply chain challenges here? We've heard that in a lot of industries. Are they being able to get the, the product they need on the shelves? Yes, supply chain and, and uh, to BJ, BJ's Lowe's, Lowe's uh, respective credit, they're investing record capital and in inventories, but also as Marshall Merrifield and the directors of the West Coast Ports uh, unwind uh, the backlog as more uh, ships, seafarers, containers, come through the West Coast, uh, West Coast uh, Gulf and uh, Eastern ports, uh, you'll see a record uh, amount of special situation inventory marked uh, to sell uh, great margins and great treasure hunt uh, for Costco, uh, BJ's, and, and, and Lowe's and the others uh, to really capitalize on the logistics and supply chain uh, being uh, c- uh, completely jammed up for 15 months and opening up uh, to record-breaking shipments uh, between now and New Year's, which means it'll be a great yep. Memorial Day to Labor Day, back to school, and certainly holiday selling, too. All right, Bert, thanks so much for jumping on with us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on all things retail. Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group. It was a busy, busy week for retail earnings, generally coming in very, very strong, as you would expect. Easy comparisons, plus this economy is opening up. This is Bloomberg. Now, let's get into the world of retail investing. And I don't mean, you know, buying (laughs) shares of Kmart or Kroger, but I mean, um, you know, Wall Street bets, uh, Diamond Hands, Reddit um, uh, boards about GameStop and altcoins to the moon. Ms. Elena Agolfopoulou joins us now, personal finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She wrote one of the most read stories on the terminal today. And... Ms. Elena, I have to say it's a little bit depressing um, reading about this sad dude, Eric Hackney, who's uh, his wife, Brittany, and he's got a couple of kids and he just wants to get rich fast, right, without having to do anything. So um, he buys, what, 20 billion Australian safe shepherd coin? That's exactly right. I mean, you know, this is one could say pretty parallel to the idea of gambling, right? Like you uh, are basically throwing a couple of hundred dollars into, uh, into something that you hope will help you get rich quick, but there's absolutely no basis of investing in these coins uh, because of their fundamentals. This is a pure gamble. And the reason why people like Eric are, you know, interested in throwing their money in assets like that is because they've seen people become very rich uh, through these vehicles. And namely, I think the one that we all look at is is Dogecoin, right? Like this is a coin that started as a joke. um, And if you threw a couple of hundred dollars into Dogecoin last July, that meant that those dollars now are worth hundreds of thousands 
of dollars. And so what these investors are, are trying to figure out is what's the next Dogecoin. And that's when the Australian Safe Shepherd coin comes in, but also other cryptocurrencies that are really weirdly named and exist in this sort of really weird um, like space within the crypto world called DeFi for decentralized finance. And they're named you know, after dogs like Shiba Inu or Papa Inu or Baby Inu, but also oh, names boy. like Taco Cat uh, and even Safe Moon, you know, which is a coin that was endorsed by Dave Portnoy uh, just a few a few days ago. And so you're really seeing these coins um, gain traction. And, and what these retail investors are trying to figure out is which one of them is going to become the next Dodge coin. Because, hey, if it happened once, it surely will happen again, right? All right. So... This is kind of begs, you know, being an old Wall Street guy trading in, you know, the boring old stock markets, bond markets, things like that. It just kind of begs for some. Paul buys munis. Yes, and my munis. <laughs> thank you very much. Just kind of begs for some regulatory oversight. So, where do we stand on that? You know, not really, not really far into it. I mean, this space is, as of now, completely unregulated, which is why you're seeing a lot of these. Uh, uh, you know, players in this space come in and, and basically do whatever whatever they want. I mean, the pump and dump uh, scheme in this industry and in this space is known as, as a rug pull, right? Because creating a coin right now is so easy. There's all these different platforms that exist in the DeFi space where you can basically go on, log in, add a couple of parameters, hmm. and, you know, an, 10 minutes or uh, an hour later, you, you have a coin. And then what a lot of times, you know, uh, or creators with sort of bad incentives do is they'll create a coin, they'll mint it, they'll, they'll promote it, um, but they'll buy in early and then they'll get a lot of other people to buy into it and that'll cause the price to go up and then all of a sudden they'll just pull all of their assets and have the price fall. So whoever invests basically loses uh, their money and that is something that's happening pretty frequently. And right I mean, now, but can we, I, I want two things I have to say because I'm getting a lot of messages here. Um, it's Dogecoin. Not Dogecoin. Doge. Yeah. <laughs> Doge. It's almost, it's supposed to be fun to say. It's a ridiculous name. Um, like, you know, a, a royal uh, uh, person in Venice, the Doge. Um, I think, though, someone like Eric, right, um, who's who's chugging Bud Light Mai Tais, and <laughs> he, he knows That's that this is a scam, right? I mean, everyone who's involved, this isn't any worse than people, um, you know, on oxygen, smoking a pack of Marlboros in a casino, you know, putting <laughs> their life savings into the slot machine, or even walking around New York, I see, you know, the least fortunate people are always in the 7-Eleven buying all the scratch-offs with the money that you know they don't have to lose, right? So th this isn't any worse than that. In fact, these people on Wall Street Bets, they know what they're in. 100%, but they don't, they don't mind. And I think a big reason why they don't, um, and this is based purely on, you know, having spoken to a lot of these investors, is that they're not spending their life savings into these coins, right? We're talking about a couple of hundred dollars, which in their mind is safer than spending it on a lottery ticket or going to a casino because if you are able to spend enough time on social media where you're seeing uh, these coins being talked right. about, promoted, and, and you're able to strategically get in early and pull your money out at a right time, yep. it could work. Is this a safe <laughs> investment? Definitely, you know, definitely not. There's nope. so much risk to it. But at the end of the day, if you put in $200 right. or $300, that's 
how much you lose. All and right. I think a lot of people are comfortable doing that. All right. <laughs> Fascinating story. Miss Arlena Agofapolo, thank you so much. He's a personal finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.